In the United States, laws governing healthcare fraud and abuse and financial conflicts of interest seek to prevent physicians and other healthcare providers from unethically profiting from the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Given increased attention and complexity in this area, physicians may have to seek legal advice when structuring healthcare business arrangements. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Zach Buck, an Associate Professor at the University of Tennessee College of Law. As part of the journal's series on the fundamentals of health law, Professor Buck has written a perspective article about fraud and abuse regulation. Professor Buck, could you summarize the primary goals of healthcare fraud and abuse regulation in the United States, and whom or what is regulation intended to protect? Of course. So the primary goals of fraud and abuse regulation in the United States are intended to limit potential harm to taxpayers. So specifically, focused on protecting the public fisc. You see that most commonly in regulation involving Medicare and Medicaid, an effort to try to prevent overtreatment or ill-gotten gains, fraud, examples where institutions are marking up the cost of goods and of services in the healthcare space. And so the intent is ultimately to protect the taxpayer in these cases. So you write in your perspective article that there are three major federal statutes protecting publicly supported health insurance programs. Let's start with the False Claims Act. What's prohibited under that law and what are the penalties for violating it? So the False Claims Act is seen as the most extensive law in terms of what it prohibits. So the False Claims Act prohibits any claim that can be alleged to be false that is filed with the federal government seeking payment from the federal government. So it actually applies beyond just the healthcare space, but it can be used within healthcare billing, in particular Medicare or Medicaid or one of the other public programs where providers are seeking compensation or reimbursement for care provided. What it does then is it applies when violated a pretty extensive penalty so the government can seek three times the damage that they've experienced. So that is three times any kind of ill-gotten reimbursement that the government has paid to the provider or the institution, as well as a per-claim penalty, which has been adjusted numerous times over the last decade. And this really accounts for the majority of settlement amounts and penalty amounts that are applied by the False Claims Act. And so if the government can prove that the provider submitted a claim that is false. And if that provider submitted that claim knowingly, that is the provider had actual knowledge of the falsity of the claim or submitted the claim with deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard that the claim was false, then the government can go after that provider or institution under the FCA. You talk in your article about the whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act. How have they been important to enforcement efforts? Right. So the False Claims Act has provisions that allow for a relator to bring initial allegations and under its key TAM provisions, which translates to in the name of the king. And the law allows then a private citizen to effectively be deputized. That is a private citizen who comes into knowledge of fraud or falsity or some kind of false claim can file a claim on behalf of the government. And then the government can decide whether or not to what's known as intervene. If the government does intervene, then the government, the Department of Justice, takes over the litigation. What's so interesting about the structure of the False Claims Act, then, is it allows for the government to come into knowledge that it otherwise wouldn't be able to access. 
So by deputizing private citizens and incentivizing them, after all, relators get a percentage of the settlement on the back end or a judgment, the government is able to come into information that is often hard to get and can access information that might lead to a more easily provable case. Again, the relator provisions have been with the law from its very inception during the Civil War, which allowed Union Army officials to basically prosecute the False Claims Act or to enforce it on behalf of the federal government. And then what about the anti-kickback statute? What's important for physicians to know about that rule? So the anti-kickback statute is structurally different from the False Claims Act and that the anti-kickback statute applies in the context of healthcare, so it is more narrow than the FCA is, and it applies where you have often a bilateral relationship. That is, you have liability for a party that is basically paying or offering or soliciting or receiving really anything of value in return for services, healthcare services that are reimbursed by the federal government. So in the anti-kickback statute, what providers have to be concerned about is, are there any bilateral relationships where money or anything of value is going in one direction and patients or services are going in the other direction? What makes the anti-kickback statute concerning for providers is that it is a criminal statute. So it carries criminal penalties as well as jail time. Now, most healthcare relationships or many healthcare relationships can, at least on paper, fall within the ambit of the anti-kickback statute. That is, really any transaction that occurs in the healthcare space may have some kickback element to it, or it may look like a kickback. And so the anti-kickback statute has a number, dozens of safe harbors that protect providers who are engaged in certain transactional relationships that may look like a kickback relationship, but it provides coverage or immunity for them as long as they follow the strict requirements of each regulatory safe harbor. So an example here may be an employment safe harbor. Of course, if you're employed by a hospital, you're getting paid and you may be referring patients to maybe the x-ray department that's also benefiting the hospital financially. On paper, that may look like a kickback relationship. You're getting money as a provider and you're sending patients down the hall to get x-rays. But that is covered by the employment safe harbor, as long as there are certain requirements that are met in your employment contract. The third statute you describe is the Stark Law. So what relationships or referrals are covered under that law? And where are the exceptions there? So the Stark Law has a very similar structure and setup to the anti-kickback statute. The Stark Law is different in a couple of ways, though. The Stark Law prohibits referrals for what are known as specific designated health services. And it also prohibits individual providers, doctors, from having financial relationships with institutions in which they refer patients. So if a physician sees a patient and then also owns a pharmacy, if that physician refers the patient to the pharmacy to get a script filled, that would be a stark violation. What's different about the stark law from the anti-kickback statute is that it does not require any intent standard. The anti-kickback statute does require intent, which means, of course, that the provider has to intend to complete or to perform a kickback or receive a kickback. On the Stark Law, there is no intent standard. It is a strict liability statute. So it is in many ways seen as 
technical in its operation in order to protect oneself from Stark law investigation or allegation, you have to ensure, as you mentioned, that you are part of a Stark law exception. Many of these exceptions do match the exceptions or safe harbors that we see in the anti-kickback statute. But as this is a technical statute, you have to ensure that if you have any financial relationship with any entity in which you could be referring patients, you have to make sure you're within a Stark exception. So which of these statutes could physicians potentially violate unknowingly, and how should they ensure that they don't inadvertently engage in illegal business practices? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's part of the tension that we talk about when we talk about healthcare fraud regulation, fraud and abuse regulation, is are the statutes balanced in the right way? Do they create the right incentives, or do they chill physician activity? Do they create unnecessary concern? The Stark Law is the one that has the largest reach in terms of lacking intent. So if the provider has some relationship, financial relationship, and does not have any culpable intent, it still is a Stark violation. So on that score, I would say it's important to ensure that all the transactions or arrangements, financial relationships that the physician has must be conducted or arranged in a way with an eye toward potential Stark law violation, potential Stark law liability. The piece of the Stark law that is particularly concerning, I think, is it also includes a wide definition of family members. So if you have a relative who also is engaged in the practice of medicine and has a financial relationship, that also can suffice for potential Stark violation. So it's very, very important to structure all transactions with an eye toward potential Stark law compliance. The other statutes are a little less concerning in this regard because they do both require intent. So there is a knowing standard in the False Claims Act. And of course, the anti-kickback statute being a criminal statute requires a little more burden of the government to prove its case. But both still are concerning. And in fact, the False Claims Act can be violated due to an overpayment. So Medicare may make a mistake and double bill, send you extra fund or extra reimbursement that it shouldn't have. You have a duty to return that overpayment to the government within 60 days of identifying it, or it can ripen into a false claim. So again, another example of where the physician may not have done anything wrong or not known that they had done anything wrong, come into a potential overpayment and have a duty to return those funds just highlights the importance of having a robust, substantial, and well-run compliance program that has its eyes on the right pieces here. And then finally, moving forward, what kinds of reforms to this system of fraud and abuse regulation do you see that could support both deterrence and then fair enforcement? We've seen over the last 37 years since the kind of modern era of healthcare fraud and abuse enforcement came into effect, We've seen effectively a one-way ratchet from Congress. We've seen increasing penalties for providers. We've seen increasing resources for enforcement efforts. We've seen increasing protection for whistleblowers to bring these types of cases. And so my estimate of the future, my prediction for the future is that these trends will likely continue. They are seen as politically popular efforts in many ways at the congressional level. And we don't see a lot of discussion about addressing enforcement where it may be the case that we've got federal prosecutors who may be more aggressive in certain areas than others and sometimes may not be the right decision in terms of 
where we put resource allocation to build the right set of incentives. And so at least from my perspective, it seems as though the trends that have kind of created the challenge that we find ourselves in or that providers find themselves in will likely continue. I think it does, of course, matter whether the types of reforms that we've seen, at least in the payer space, may have some impact here. So we have noticed that there have been some loosening regulations around value-based payments. We've seen, at least at the very end of the Trump administration, a number of new safe harbors that protect providers and entities that are trying to form accountable care organizations. And so there is some recognition, at least at the government level, the regulator level, that many of the new efforts in healthcare in terms of how we've tried to reform the payment system to make it more incentive-based may run into some of these limitations brought about by the fraud and abuse statutes. And so there is some recognition that there needs to be more work done to make sure that they're not in conflict. So I do see that happening at the same time. But as for the macro trends that have kind of led us to this place, I don't see them abating anytime soon. Thank you, Professor Buck.